BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We know more about crab A disease than we ever knew or will ever know about Colin because he could never tell us anything. We didn't get to know our son, Alex, because he passed away at 13 months old. No family should have to go through that. Those children's lives could be saved. That's the only way that these kiddos will have any hope at a better quality of life. We need to have reasonable uh, expectation that the screen will help make a difference in a child's life. The obvious effects of the treatment are sitting right here. I wouldn't trade my son for the world. It's time, ladies and gentlemen. Over the next two years, more than 120,000 babies will be born all across Wisconsin, and odds are one of them will have a rare but fatal genetic disorder. There is a life-saving treatment available for it, but one thing is standing in the way. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday, March 4th. And last night, Brian, you reported on new legislation aimed at protecting newborns in Wisconsin from a deadly genetic disorder known as Crab A disease. This is not the first time you've reported on this. So let's start by just a quick reminder of what Crab A is and why a state senator is now stepping in to do something about it. We first talked about this last year, really just before the pandemic. Uh, it was uh, a family who had come to Fox 6 News uh, from Wisconsin Rapids, Kevin and Judy Cushman. Their son, Colin, was born in 2010, December of 2010, and seemed to be a perfectly healthy child. And uh, about seven or eight months in, he started having symptoms uh, of, you know, he was losing his ability to grasp things to move. Um, he was irritable. He, his reactions were slow. They didn't know what was going on. And they went through a series of, of tests and, and ultimately found out that he had this rare uh, genetic disorder called Crab A disease, which is a disease that uh, essentially uh, causes the deterioration of a protective coating around nerve cells in the brain called myelin. That protective coating, as it deteriorates, um, the child naturally starts to lose function, both motor skills and also cognitive function. And it's something that once that happens, the degeneration never stops. It gets worse and worse, and ultimately it's fatal. And many of the children who are ultimately diagnosed with Crab A die before they even make it to the age of two. Colin uh, somehow survived until the age of eight. He had round-the-clock care from his family, um, but uh, for most of that time, seven years of his eight-year life, he really wasn't there in the way a child could be. He couldn't respond to them. He couldn't tell them when something was hurting. He might cry. He might whine, but they didn't know what was wrong. And sometimes it would take them days to figure out what that was. It was 
a painful and tragic life. Uh, and uh, still, they obviously loved their son. He passed away at the age of eight, and they've made it their mission to raise awareness of crybaby disease and to do something about it because there is something that can be done for children like their son. Well, and and what is that something? Because uh, this is an issue on its face. It sounds simple. And then you peel back the layers and, and there are a lot of roadblocks. Well, you, you think of there, this is not the only rare genetic disorder out there. There are all sorts of various rare disorders um, that, you know, when you think about them on an individual level, you go, yeah, but there's all kinds of rare disorders. But what's particularly concerning about Crab A is the fact that it is if it's not detected early, if it's not detected almost right away after birth, if you wait until symptoms appear, it's too late to do anything about it. Once the symptoms appear, it's a death sentence. There Now, now that may be changing over time as technology improves, medical technology. There may be treatments that can prolong life, that can improve the quality of life. But essentially, it is an early death sentence for most kids who are diagnosed. So the key is diagnosing it right away, which typically means at birth. And if you know within a first the first few days of a child's life that they have this condition. Um, they haven't developed the disease itself, but they have the genetic markers for it. Then there is a bone marrow transplant, a stem cell transplant that can be done. It's risky. And it's something that parents really have to think about. And you imagine, I mean, Amanda, you've already had one child. You are pregnant with a second. You imagine if the day that baby's born or within a couple of days, you are told, not only does the child have this, uh, you know, ominous condition, but you've got to make a quick decision. Do you put your child through what could be a very risky procedure with an 85% survival rate? Um, or do you just make the best of what's there? It's a very, very difficult thing for parents to grasp, to go through. But they have to make that decision right away because if they don't, if this transplant isn't done within the first 30 days of, of a child's life, then again, the, the outcome is certain. And so if... And this is a story, I mean, if you're a parent or a soon-to-be parent, it just punches you in the gut. I remember when you first started reporting on this, Brian, um, my daughter was around nine months old. She's right around that time where those symptoms first start appearing. And so you think about just what that is like for a parent to, to go through those first nine months and think everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, what seems like out of nowhere, you get these symptoms and you find out it's a death sentence. So it, it sounds like the way to detect this early on is a newborn screening, but that's not as simple as it sounds. It's not. And if you if you have had a child or, or have been with someone who had a child in the hospital, you probably know that babies are tested at birth for a number of conditions. Their hearing is tested. They have a, a their heels pricked and a blood sample taken where they're tested for all sorts of various disorders. Wisconsin has a list of something like 40 or 50 different disorders that are tested for at birth. Now, each one of those has to be run through different types of screening and laboratory assays and things. And that takes expertise. It takes personnel and it does cost money. So they can't just willy-nilly keep adding more and more disorders. There could be potentially hundreds of disorders you could add to that screening. So the state of Wisconsin does have a process and a program for determining what should be part of that newborn screening. And they, you know, each different disorder has to be nominated. 
And then it goes through a vetting process where experts weigh in and say, you know, what? well, why is early detection important? Is there a treatment available? What is the cost? What would be the procedure? And, and in, with Crab A disease, there is no question. There is widespread agreement among the experts that this is a disorder. If it's not detected at birth, the outcomes will be poor. Um, there is no question that newborn screening is necessary for that kind of early detection. But then there are other questions that include, for instance, is the, is the test for it accurate? And early on, if you go back several years when the state of New York was the first state to start testing for Crab A, there were concerns that the initial tests had a lot of false positives. And what you end up doing, imagine, Amanda, you have a child and you're told, well, your baby just tested positive for a deadly disorder. And now there's this risky surgery that you're making the decision for your child to have. Only to find out, oops, the test was wrong. That's definitely a concern. But over the years, they have come up with ways, and I won't get into the science of it because, frankly, it's over my head, but there's a type of testing called psychazine testing that's essentially a follow-up test that can be done immediately after the initial blood screening that can confirm if, in fact, that positive means what they think it means. And if that psychazine test then comes back and says, yes, you have a child who is going to have this early infantile form of crab A disease, then you know okay, it's time for the transplant or just to let nature take its course. Um, because that test has improved, that's sort of been knocked off the table as one of the major concerns. But then there's another, and there are all sorts of categories that these experts evaluate, but another big one, and the one that still seems to be sort of sitting out there, is the question of, okay, so we've caught it, now what? Is the treatment safe and is it effective? The safe question is the one of this transplant. Is it, is it safe? Well, it's risky. It's it's not, uh, you know, uh, a 50-50 kind of thing, but 15% uh, or 85% survival rate, that means 15% of the kids who go this procedure, go through this procedure, could die. Um, and, and that may also be improving as technology gets better and as they do this more. But if you imagine, am I going to put my child through something that he might live until eight, maybe it's going to be a tough life, but... There's a 15% chance he's going to die or she's going to die right now. That's an extremely difficult decision for any parent to make. And so there's that's part of it. Then the other half of that equation is, is the treatment effective? Let's say the child survives the treatment. Is it effective? And here's where the real controversy comes in. Because how do you define an effective treatment? If it means a cure, like crab A disease is gone and the child's going to live a normal life? No, there is no treatment. There is no cure for crab A. But what about a child living instead of to the age of two or three or even eight? They can live to the age of 20 or 30 or 50. Maybe they'll have disabilities, but they can live a very meaningful life. And, and we found a person who fits that example in Jeremy Toms, uh, another Wisconsin family, the Toms family. Uh, Jeremy's now 20 years old. He had the transplant at birth. He does have significant disabilities. He's in a wheelchair. Um, he has you know, dental issues. You, it's one of the most visible things you see when you talk to him. He has you know, only a few teeth. Um, he is slow in the way he speaks, but Jeremy laughs and he's got a great sense of humor and he loves Netflix shows. He's a big fan of The Mandalorian. He builds Legos. He sings in front of his church. He wants to learn to play the piano. He's living life. He's living life and his parents love him. And so is is that a life worth living? Is that a life worth saving? Absolutely. When you talk to the Toms, they say they, they wouldn't trade the world for it. 
I know that, you know, we talk about obviously the the ultimate cost here of, of doing nothing can be a child's life. There is a cost, a, a financial cost to the screening. What is that cost and who pays for it? Well, and that's a, those are great questions. And that's not there's not a clear answer, but there's a fairly close answer. Um, the, the state has looked at what it costs to have the equipment, to have the expertise um, and to add CREBE um, just on its own. Some of the experts uh, at the State Department of Health Services have, have estimated it would cost around three hundred thousand dollars a year or roughly about four dollars per child. There's about 60 to 65 thousand babies born in Wisconsin every year. So they say about about four bucks a kid. Now, that was an estimate that was uh, produced several years ago. And since then, other experts have said that cost has come down significantly, in part because Wisconsin recently uh, ran a pilot program for another similar disease called Pompeii, which is a lysosomal storage disorder. And I won't get into what that means, but they are similar conditions. And because they've now added the equipment and the expertise with Pompeii disease, adding another similar disorder to test is not as expensive because you don't have to reinvent the wheel of laboratory equipment. You don't have to reinvent the staff with the expertise. It's an adjustment. It is an additional test. But others have said they think maybe $1 to $2 per screening card. Um, so you might be talking $150,000 a year or $100,000 a year. And that's still money. And that's real. If you say there's 50 or 60 disorders, 100 or 200000 each becomes a substantial cost. But it's not as though the family that goes in to give birth has to pull a couple of bucks out of their wallet for every disorder. This is usually covered by insurance. And, uh, and and Medicaid and things like that. So these are these are costs that are ultimately covered. Now, obviously, you talk about Medicaid. That's that's paid for by taxpayers. And so there is a cost to this. And everything you look at, that's going to be an evaluation. But State Senator Patrick Teston, who has been uh, working with the family, he he is the senator who represents the area that the Cushmans are from. Uh, he's from Stevens Point, but represents Wisconsin Rapids. He has said that the cost of caring for a crab a child over the course of their lifetime is estimated to be $700,000. So you start to look at the cost of detecting versus the cost of caring for someone who goes undetected. And, and so there are costs on both ends. So that's certainly one of the factors here, but it doesn't necessarily seem to be the one that has stood in the way necessarily. Um, although we'll see because now that Senator Tessin has introduced legislation, and I'll talk about how that came about, now that he has, that is something that his colleagues are going to have to address because whenever you attach what's known as a fiscal note to a bill, which means this bill will cost money, people start to, to hesitate and balk and say, okay, how much and, and what do we get out of it? And the real hard sell here is it's so rare. It's considered an ultra rare disorder. You may go through a year or two years with no one who tests positive. And then you say, why? Why are we spending a couple hundred thousand a year on a test that has zero positive rate? Because that one time and within a couple of years, the odds say one will test positive. You could save that one child's life. And that's something that especially when you talk to these families and hear their stories, you can't put a price on that for those families. It's, it's not comforting to hear, oh, it's an ultra rare disorder when that disorder has affected your family and stolen a life from your family. And when you think about this, Amanda, you wonder where this comes from. Like, where does this disease 
how do you get it? How does this end up uh, affecting a child? And it really comes down to a matter of chance. It's a mathematical chance. One out of every 158 adults are carriers of the recessive gene that causes Crab A. And so you might have it, I might have it, we wouldn't know. One out of 100, think of 158 people you know, one of them has the gene. But it takes two of those people to have a child together, two people who are carriers, to potentially have a child that has it. And even then, that child has to get both of those recessive genes. So there's a 1 in 25,000 chance that two of these people come together in any given relationship, and then a 1 in 4 chance on top of that that the child has the disease. So that's where they come up with this about 1 in 100,000 chance of a child having crab a and again that is considered ultra rare but when you look at the fact that there are 60 to 65,000 children born in wisconsin every year obviously it's just a matter of time before another child has this disease state senator uh, uh Teston has introduced this bill because the department of health services so far has rejected the nomination of crab a and the most recent rejection came just last month in February. To be added to the newborn screening. To, to, to I'm sorry, to be added to the newborn screening program. There were a series of hearings held throughout the pandemic from uh, uh, April. There was a hearing with a subcommittee. There was another in October and another in December where they have met. They've gone over all the details. There were votes taken. And there are about nine different categories that each thing has to pass to be added it passed about six or seven of those. The other couple of categories where there's still questions, there were a number of people on those committees who said they need more information. And they've now encouraged the Cushmans, the Department of Health Services has, uh, Department of Health Services has to resubmit CRAB-A again, which means going through this entire process all over again, getting a doctor who will fill out all the paperwork because they're not experts to fill this stuff out to nominate the disease, to go through the subcommittee, to go through the umbrella committee, to go through this entire bureaucratic procedure, which could take another year, another two years or more. And their concern is there's just not time for that. They want to save the next child's life who could have this disease. And so Senator Teston has introduced this legislation. He's circulating a bill for co-sponsorship. It's in the very early stages. Um, He needs to educate his colleagues about even what this disease is. And that's where stories like this come into play. Um, hopefully they at least explain the background of what's going on and what's really at stake. And then we see where it leads from there. Obviously, if this bill begins to gain traction, we'll continue to cover that and we'll let you know where this goes. This is the part of the podcast where we go off the record. We're getting a little more personal and have a little fun by answering a question we have not prepared for. So to ask us this surprise question, we are joined once again by Open Records executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hi, guys. It says here in the script that this is where you join in and ask another great question. No pressure. Not at all. I'm feeling good about this one because it's something that people feel really passionate about. Coming up, you know, there's national days for everything, national taco day, pizza day, all that kind of stuff. Um, But another one that I am a fan of is national cereal day. That's coming up. So what are your top two cereals? Cereal. See, you know, what's weird about that is I, I, I used to eat nothing but cereal for breakfast as a kid. And as an adult, I never eat cereal. But we have tons of cereal in our house because we have four kids. And and everyone has their own preference. So we have like a whole shelf in the pantry that's just dedicated to cereals. Um, so 
I, I see them. And even though I don't eat them very often, I do have my favorites. I mean, I think in my lifetime, one of my ultimate favorites was Count Chocula. I mean, come on. <laughs> the more chocolate marshmallows, the candy? better. Well, I mean, it's cereal with candy in it, right? I mean, marshmallows. <laughs> but hey, it's in the cereal aisle. I consider it cereal. I loved Count Chocula. Um, and, you know, like, there's so many options there. I was never a fan of the, like, Frosted Flakes or Raisin Bran. That was never my thing. Two scoops. No, no Raisin Bran. Um, <laughs> and, and I think maybe the worst food ever invented was Grape Nuts. Um, it's like, you know, chunky sawdust. No, that was not. That's not my thing. Um I, gosh, what would be my second? I guess. I mean, I don't want to say Lucky Charms because that's too similar to Count Chocula. Maybe like Frosted Mini Wheats, which are highly superior to regular Mini Wheats. Oh, of course, <laughs> like yes. without the frosting. And, well, and yeah. Like speaking of sawdust, regular—that's what regular <laughs> yeah. Mini Wheats are. Also superior to full-sized Frosted Mini Wheats because they're just too big. It's like eating a yeah a giant pillow of straw. It's like a biscuit. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, there's a little frosting, but the little ones seem to work a little better. Um, so I guess I guess that's what I would say. I don't know. I, I, clearly, you're not talking to like the ultimate cereal fanatic here, though. Amanda, are you a cereal fanatic? No. So I mean, we oh. ate a lot of cereal growing <laughs> so, up. This is really Sarah just wants to talk about her favorite cool. cereal. No. Well, okay. <laughs> I'll so go. I'm no. <laughs> I'm one of six kids, so it was like you will have cereal for breakfast because there is no time to make anything or or do special orders. So we were not. We did not often get the sugared cereal because um, my parents did not want six kids bouncing off the walls. But every once in a while, if if one of us was at the grocery store with my dad, he could be convinced to get Lucky Charms. And my big gripe growing up was that I would go to pour myself this this bowl of Lucky Charms that I was so excited for, and my brothers would have already gone through and picked out the marshmallows. <laughs> so when I went to college... And there was like a cereal bar. I think I had Lucky Charms every day for the first month <laughs> I was in college because I could actually get the marshmallows. And even one year for Christmas, one of my brothers got me a bag of just the Lucky Charms marshmallows. But you um, see, that's there's a thing about that because you you even though the marshmallows are the good part, you do need a little balance. You need a little of the just cereal for balance, right? Yes. Like, the, well, this grown up Amanda heavy marshmallows agrees with good. This. Grown-up Amanda agrees with this. Young Amanda wrote a letter to Lucky Charms asking them to make a cereal with only the marshmallows. And my mother claims she sent it, and I, I don't think she did. I wish we could read that because I'll bet it is – I bet you made some excellent points. You made I, a very I strong case. I outlined my argument. Um, I shared my own, like, personal story of distress of going to pour myself a bowl and there being no marshmallows. So that's the one I probably have the most emotional attachment to um, in terms of the cereal I like the best. I've always been, like, a cinnamon toast crunch person. I like that. Um, it, the problem is it's, like, all the cereals we couldn't have, right? Because then you want it more. So um, I liked, like, Fruity Pebbles and... Cookie Crisp and stuff like that. Actually, I like Raisin Bran. Cookie um, Crisp I, was a massive disappointment to me because it, oh. it it was supposed to be chocolate chip cookies and they tasted nothing like chocolate chip cookies. Oh, I liked I liked Cookie Crisp. I mean, I could really like the com- the commercials were very convincing um, to me as a kid. So if, if it had a good commercial, I probably wanted the cereal. Sarah, you have you have children who are like prime cereal age right now. Yeah, my kids, you know, they kind of go back and forth between, like, 
just plain Cheerios, which, ugh. Um, <laughs> but also, lately, Quinn's been really into Cocoa Puffs, which mm-hmm. I'm fine, whatever. Like, it, it's not every day. And if she's drinking milk with it, I call it even. Yeah. Um, I'm more of a dry cereal eater, though. I don't huh. really no milk? want milk in there. No, I just kind of eat it dry. So I like... <laughs> I like, um, I do love Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I would do that with Cocoa Puffs. I feel like that's a, like you can just have a yeah. handful of Cocoa Puffs. That works. Yeah. And I also am a fan of Honey Bunches of Oats. Ooh, those are <laughs> which good. Is I like, like those. Yeah. Which kind of seems like an old lady cereal, but it's, it's like that sweet, but I still feel like there's some not sweet stuff. I don't know. But I, I mean, I love all cereal. I love Captain Crunch. I don't like Captain Crunch when oh, it rips your mouth apart. That's 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 it. Captain Crunch, you get the berries. I loved Cap- Captain Crunch, but I had, like I had to give up Captain Crunch as a kid because yes. it is um, an absolute destroyer your mouth of is the roof of your mouth. Right. Yeah. Well, the problem is you you there's never it's like an avocado. It's either too crunchy or mush. And so, you know, there's like that 17 seconds that where you can it's eat it? a perfect bite. Yeah. <laughs> So you got to get that window, otherwise you're done. I just that combination of Captain Crunch and avocado is now kind of oh. seared into. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> my brain. It's like that meme of the meme of the avocado where it's like not ripe, not ripe, not ripe. Four seconds, up, oh, it's overripe. I'm. <laughs> I, I have to admit though, Sarah, I am now picturing you staring at a bowl with like a stopwatch and just waiting, <laughs> and then just shuffling it in. You, I've got 17 seconds. Before my mouth is, yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, now you know the cereal habits. We've we've addressed the top of the refrigerator looks. We've uh, talked about the last movie we've seen. I can only imagine what you'll come up with next. Uh, and, and if you have a question you would like for our new off-the-record segment, something you would like Sarah to ask us, we want you to let us know. We also want to know if you have suggestions for a topic we should discuss on the podcast and the serious portion. If there's an issue you think we should be investigating, any of that, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. That is fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. With that, I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we will be back next week. Mm-hmm.